The comedian Jim Gaffigan used to have a stand-up routine where he began by coming out and saying to the audience, I want everyone who comes to my shows to be really comfortable. And that's why I like to talk about Jesus. And of course, the audience was erupted just like you did with the ra- laughter. And then Gaffigan would go on to say, it doesn't matter if you're religious or not. Nothing makes us more uncomfortable than a stranger coming up to you and saying, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. <laughs> yeah, we respond, I'd really rather you not. Gaffigan joked, you could go up to the Pope and say, I want to talk to you about Jesus, and he'd say, easy freak, I keep my work at work. <laughs> Why does Jesus make us so uncomfortable? Maybe it's because the Jesus that strangers often want to talk to us about is a real drag. You know how it goes. God so loved the world that he sent his only son who loves us with an unconditional love. But if you don't repent of your sins right now, then you're going to burn in hell for all of eternity in the blistering, unquenchable fires that exist there. Now that's uncomfortable. I don't want to think about the fires of hell as I'm going to buy a $7 cup of coffee at Starbucks. It's awkward. Many of us have spent our entire lives trying to get away from that version of Jesus and his followers. We stopped going to the revivals where evangelists would try to save the last poor soul in town who had not yet converted by using guilt and the anxiety-ridden question, where would you go if you died tonight on the way home? We rejected those shallow questions, shut out the fire and brimstone preachers, walked away from exclusive churches, and left the vindictive Jesus and his judgmental followers behind us. And then we set out on another journey to find a deeper faith and a more inclusive gospel, to move beyond the Christ of faith to the Jesus of history, who called us beloved children and said the greatest of all commandments is to love God and our neighbors as ourselves. We went looking for the open-minded Jesus who was more interested in love than the fires of hell, more concerned with compassion than eternal damnation, more focused on grace and peace than judgment and punishment. And once we found him, that's the Jesus we clung to and chose to follow. And following that Jesus is far more liberating and life-giving than the one the fire and brimstone preachers or the strangers on the street talk about. And if you're like me, you've probably thought that our entire world would be more peaceful, a more harmonious place, if more Christians actually followed the loving and grace-filled Jesus. And that may be true, but I find it interesting that we progressive folks can be rather selective about the parts of Jesus' teachings and life we focus on, just like our evangelical and fundamentalist friends. Case in point is our scripture today from the Gospel of Luke. Here we have the Jesus of peace, love, and understanding saying quite explicitly, I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division that goes all the way down from top to bottom to the household relationships between members of the same family. 
Jesus was certainly not here talking about eternal damnation, but he sure was talking about fire and division, stating specifically that fire and division were the reason for his coming. I know it's not Christmas yet, but the reason for the season, the purpose of his existence, why he was born, the mission of his ministry, I came to bring fire. It's uncomfortable. It's a shocking claim. Can you imagine a politician running on a platform of fire and division? I know that's been the consequence of some recent political figures, but that's not what they ran on. You can't get elected with a platform of fire and division. Can you imagine a pastor interviewing for a church and telling the search committee, as a follower of Jesus, my theology of leadership is to bring fire and division based on Luke 12. No, they would never get called. That's because we place an extremely high priority on peace and unity in our society today, which makes Jesus' teaching in Luke 12 even more astonishing and challenging to us. It's not only a stark contradiction of conservative Christianity's focus on the family and the preservation of traditional American ideals. It is also a massive challenge to liberal Christianity's incessant desire for peace and unity above all else. In fact, the one thing liberal and conservative Christians in America can all agree on today is that they do not like the Jesus that we find in Luke 12. We find his lack of family values appalling. We do not have any interest in his mission of fire and division. Listen up, Jesus, we say. Our world has enough fire and division in it already. We don't need any more from you. In their book, Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice, authors Rupa Mara and Raj Patel claim that our bodies and our earth right now are on fire, inflamed. They write, your body is inflamed and your body is a part of a society that is inflamed and as a consequence, the planet is inflamed. Global temperature records are being broken every day. Forest fires have turned from annual to perennial events. This is the epoch, they write, of endless fire. If that's true, shouldn't we be trying to put the fire out to reduce inflammation? Why would Jesus simply add more fuel to the fires already raging inside us and in our world? Now, one way to respond to this passage might be to throw our hands up and say, we will never understand Jesus. He's ineffable, bewildering, confounding. No wonder the disciples were confused all the time. Jesus is a mystery, an enigma. We could follow him all of our lives and never fully comprehend what he was saying or doing. And here we would be in good company with one of the greatest scholars in history, Albert Schweitzer, who came to this answer at the end of his 418-page magisterial work, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, where he wrote, many of you know these words, he came to us as one unknown, without a name as of old by the lakeside. He came to those who knew him not and speaks to us the same words, follow me, and sets us to the tasks which we, which we must fulfill for our time. 
He commands, and to those who obey, he will reveal himself in the toils and the conflicts, the sufferings which they shall pass through in his fellowship. And as an ineffable mystery, they shall learn in their own experience who he is. Maybe fire and division are a part of that ineffable mystery, the ineffable mystery of Jesus, and maybe we can only truly understand what they mean in the experience of trying to follow him. However, there's another option. Beyond mystery, there's another option, and that is that our antipathy to fire and division is what makes it difficult for us to receive what Jesus is teaching. We see fire and division as wholly negative and destructive. But Jesus seems to believe they have positive attributes and possibilities. Maybe that's because, biblically speaking, fire is not always destructive. In Exodus, the fire of the burning bush Moses saw in the wilderness was a symbol of God's presence, God's holiness, and a kind of fire we see there that burned but did not destroy. Then God sent a pillar of fire to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And Luke told us at the beginning of his gospel through John the Baptist that Jesus was coming to bring a fire, a fire of purification and justice. So fire is not just a tool of destruction, but liberation, transformation. Fire is the power of God to enter the world and create a new reality in the face of formidable resistance. As memorably sung in Handel's Messiah, the prophet Malachi refers to God as a refining fire. We don't have a whole lot of professional refiners these days in our society, but in ancient times, a refiner was known as a, a silversmith, and the process of refining was used to remove all the impurities and to free the metal being worked with from things that would mar and deform and lessen its value, thereby enabling it to be molded and shaped into something new. It was a fine art which required careful attention. The refiner was attentive and deliberate, intentionally watching the silver as they held it in the fire as it was being purified. There's an old story of a, a woman who visited a silversmith and asked him, how do you know when the silver is refined? And the silversmith responded, when I can see my face in the silver. God is like that refiner carefully holding her gaze on each of us as she is working to refine us like precious metal until we reflect God's own image right back to her. It's like the prayers of steel by Carl Sagan. Lay me on an anvil, O God, he wrote. Beat me and hammer me into a crowbar so that I may pry loose old walls. Let me lift and loosen old foundations. There is a fire that burns but does not destroy, that liberates and transforms. It's the fire we also see in the book of Acts where God's spirit literally comes into the world as tongues of fire that burn with passion and purpose. The fire liberates and transforms the disciples into bold witnesses and gives birth to the church. Despite all our fears and negative feelings about fire, fire is not always negative in the Bible. God identifies with fire. And the church was born from the fire. 
Without the liberating and transforming fire of God's presence, there would be no community of faith. The fire of God's presence is working to eviscerate everything that stands in the way of the new world that is coming. Everything that stands in the way of transformation and liberation, every form of injustice and oppression, every sin in the world, in our lives, systemic and individual, and it burns until what is precious and beautiful can be revealed. The fire God wants to kindle is the fire of change and transformation and liberation. The fire of God's active presence in our lives and the world. It's no wonder Jesus was eager to strike a match for that. Maybe we should all be a little bit more excited about a fire that burns but does not destroy. Could this fire be the very tool that God has given us to change the world? Okay, I know what you're thinking. Ben, you're a pyromaniac. And I'll grant you, Ben, that uh, Bible, in the Bible, fire may be a positive sign of God's liberating and transforming work, but what about division? You can't possibly stand up there in a pulpit and defend division. It's always negative and destructive. Just look at our country today. We are more divided than ever. It's destructive. Aren't peace and unity and reconciliation the highest of all the virtues? If our goal is to build a perfect world and a static utopia where never, nothing ever changes, then yes. But change is a necessary part of the logic of the universe that is always growing and ever unfolding. And as Octavia Butler said, God is change. Our universe is changing. Our world is changing. We are all changing. And in, in this universe of change, division, it turns out, is a natural part of existence, written into the very fabric of creation itself. Division is a crucial part of the biology of all the creatures that live on this earth, including human beings. If it wasn't for division, all of us would die. Our bodies are made up of over 37 trillion cells and nearly two trillion of them divide every day so we can survive. Cells divide and multiply to replace dead and damaged cells so that we can grow and stay healthy. We only live and grow because our cells are dividing and producing more cells. So division is one of the most natural, necessary, and healthy activities going on in all of creation. This doesn't mean that unlimited division is good for all bodies. When a cell cannot stop dividing and multiplying, it often leads to the horrific disease that we know of as cancer. Too much of anything is unhealthy. The division going on in our bodies must be regulated for us to survive, but division itself remains a positive thing for us, a life-giving thing for us, a healthy process for the human body and all cellular life on this planet. If there was no division, there would be no healing, no change, no growth, no transformation. Life itself would cease to exist. I wonder if Paul knew this biological fact when he described the church as a body with many parts. And I wonder what this might mean for the body politic we call America. Just like fire, Jesus believed division is a necessary and healthy elemental process that leads to transformation and liberation. We tend to look at all the division in our society as a bad and negative thing, but perhaps Perhaps there's something hopeful in it that we're not willing to see. What if 
Division is the evidence that our individual and collective body is healing, growing, changing, that a new world is being born. There's a real temptation for us to strive for false unity in the face of the division in our society today. And while desire for unity is good, we must recognize that not all unity is good. And unity in and of itself is not the highest good we ought to strive for. Parents and politicians that are banning books and curriculum in schools today say they don't want anything being taught to children that might be divisive. I don't see that as a positive unity. Our country was divided from the very beginning by slavery, capitalism, civil war, segregation, and other forms of oppression. We're not going to heal a history of division by refusing to talk about it or telling our children that talking about the history of division is divisive. That's strange. If Jesus heard that, he'd say, I did not come to bring peace but division. Martin Luther King Jr. would say, True peace is not the absence of tension, but the presence of justice. And James Baldwin would say, we can disagree and still love one another unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and denial of my humanity or right to exist. When injustice and oppression are taking place, division becomes not only a necessity but a virtue. It calls for simple or false unity, simply reinforce and uphold the violence. And that leaves us with two questions. One, if Jesus was not concerned about fire and division, then why are we so worried about it? And second, if peace, unity, and reconciliation aren't the highest of the virtues, then what is? Well, Jesus offered us an answer to this in this text. Did you see it? The highest of all virtues, he said, is the ability to interpret the present, to understand the moment we are in, to answer the question, what time is it? He accused the crowds of being hypocrites who were better at predicting the weather than knowing what time it was in history. Bob Dylan famously echoed this in his song, Subterranean Homesick Blues, where he sang, you don't need to be a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Throughout history, some have called the practice of interpreting the times, reading the signs of the age, or discerning the spirits, or simply discernment. For most of my life growing up, I thought this big word, discernment, was just a churchy word for making good decisions. However, Henry Nouwen shook me when he wrote, discernment is not the same as decision-making, but the practice of distinguishing between what is true and what is false. Seeing through appearances and false realities, discernment, he wrote, is the ability to unmask the illusions of the social order. Now in claims, discernment requires us to pay attention to our time and place, and that we cannot truly know who we are or how to live until we first understand where and when we are in time. He illustrates this by looking at Thomas Merton's autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, which begins with these words. On the last day of January 1915, under the sign of the water bearer, in the year of the Great War, and down in the shadow of some French mountains on the border of Spain, I came into the world. 
Nowen takes this to be a profound model of how we must all discern our core identity in the midst of the times in which we live. Merton did not simply write, I was born January 31st, 1915 in the French mountains. He contextualized his birth with the Great War, World War I, because he understood the war not only shaped who he was, but his purpose and mission on earth. As many of you know, Merton later became one of the wisest spiritual figures of the 20th century and also one of the most powerful anti-war activists as well. He taught us that we must not only discover, as Beekner said, where our deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet, but where we are and when we are in time and what gifts we have been given by God that can be of use at this particular moment in history. A few years ago, a colleague who was pastoring a large and prominent congregation let me in on a new practice that she had created for herself. She told me that every morning she would wake up and intentionally make herself say out loud, Donald Trump is the President of the United States. At first I found this horrifying and wondered why would she do this to herself? But after some reflection, I realized there was a deep wisdom and responsibility in this practice. She was practicing discernment, refusing to live in despair, denial, or apathy, or pretend that reality didn't matter, or that what was happening in the world was not impacting her or her ministry or her people. Instead, she forced herself to wake up and acknowledge the reality of the world that she lived in at that very moment every single day. She refused to forget where she was in time or when she was in history. She trained herself to take responsibility for where and when she was and to discern what God was calling her to be at that specific moment. The fire and division Jesus brings to our world might feel different if we practice more discernment. Instead of bemoaning division, what if we tried to interpret the present moment and to define our identity and our vocation in relationship to the world in which we find ourselves? If we were practicing discernment, we might be like spiritual meteorologists who constantly read the signs of the times and the way the wind is blowing and find ourselves better prepared to engage in the task which God has called us to fulfill in our time, as Schweitzer invited us to do. Discernment is not a once-and-done activity. It is a lifelong practice that we must do over and over and over again as we grow older and change and as the world around us changes as well. There is a fire that our world needs to come and burn away all the dross of injustice and bring liberation and transformation. There's a division our world needs to come and bring healing and growth and new life the fire and division of Jesus. That's what we need. And it's coming, Jesus says, whether we like it or not. So what we need to do is learn how to take responsibility for the moment that we are in and figure out how to distinguish between what needs burning and what can remain, what needs dividing and what can be sustained. That is what it means to interpret the times and to practice the art of discernment. So I ask you today, 
What time is it? Where are you? When are you? And what are you going to do about it?